They went on from there and passed through Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. The lesson for today comes right on the heels of that conversation up at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus had asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter had said, You are the Messiah. And Jesus then began to tell them how the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem, be handed over, killed, and then rise again. Simon said, There is no way. He began to rebuke him, saying, That's not what happens to the Messiah. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You do not know the ways of God. So the next time Jesus says almost identically what he said before, how the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem, will be handed over, they will kill him. It's very positive. They will kill him, and then he will be raised again. They did not understand, but they were afraid to ask. Remember the paper chase? Some of you older ones will remember the paper chase with me. John Hausman played the role of a law professor up in a New England school who loved to have a room filled with students and whenever one of them would ask a foolish question, he would carve his initials into that student's chest. I had a professor like that one time. He was brilliant. Dr. Schubert Ogden, his name, he's still living, retired now in Denver, Colorado. Really brilliant. When our Jason was inducted into Phi Beta Kappa down at SMU, this man was president of Phi Beta Kappa over the southwestern United States. He was amazingly bright. And I ended up having him as professor on the most important course one has to take in seminary, and that's called systematic theology. You have all kinds of courses in Bible and preaching and pastoral care, but systematic theology is a full year's work, nine months, because then you have to write the biggest paper you're going to write of all your time at the seminary. And you're going to have to be sure that your understanding of sin has something to do with your understanding of forgiveness and salvation. It all has to fit together neatly. The first time some students stood up in our class and asked a really foolish question, Dr. Schubert Ogden carved his initials in that kid's chest. And I decided, I'm never asking a question. I'm never asking a question in this class. But as we went on through the semester, one of the other students asked me, have you ever talked to him out in the hall? I said, no. And he said, he's much different 
in the hall. If you catch him out in the hall and ask a question when no one else is around, he's a really nice person. And I discovered that was exactly right. Don't ask a dumb question in front of the whole class. But when you get the teacher out in the hall, if you can catch him out there, you can ask, and he'll really look you in the eye and try to help you understand. The disciples weren't getting it because what Jesus was saying was so contrary to everything they had ever been taught. God was expected to send a Messiah, but that Messiah would bring a reign of peace to the whole earth. All villainous governments would be forced out. All injustice would immediately cease. Messiah would bring the Messianic Age. He certainly wasn't going to be humiliated and crucified on a Roman cross. Let's take a look. Number one. This is the second time. The second time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus has said this to the disciples about going to Jerusalem. The word literally is handed over. Handed over to people. And guess what they're going to do? They're going to kill him, this son of man. They're going to kill him. You have to make a decision. Peter, James, John, Andrew, all the rest have to make a decision. You're going with me? You're going with me? You're going to go through what I'm about to go through with me? You all know the name Ellen Burstyn, if you're moviegoers. I don't have any quarrel with Ellen Burstyn, but when she submits to an interview in the Wall Street Journal and decides to talk about religion, I figure she's fair game. In a recent interview, Ellen Burstyn had an interviewer come to her home and was ooing and eyeing about the beautiful drapery and the beautiful carpets and the beautiful bedroom and so on. Ellen's had a hard life, according to her. Uh, born in Detroit, grew up there. Her father molested her. Her mother divorced him, but was little better. Uh, according to Ellen, her mother and the stepfather she later married also verbally, physically abused her. Uh, by the time she was a young adult, she started trying to find the right guy. She was on her third marriage by the time she was 40. He turned out, that third husband, to be schizophrenic stalked her, uh, raped her. Uh, finally, he committed suicide when she was only 45 years old, so she sort of wrote guys off at that point. Uh, 77 years old now. She has a Tony. She has an Emmy. She has a Golden Globe. She has an Oscar. But then the interviewer said, Wow, what a display of gods. And Ellen said, Well, yes. I was born and baptized Roman Catholic, so she has a crucifix. Later she said, I got interested in Islam, particularly Sufism, which is a mystical branch of that faith. But then right there on the shelf was also a Buddha, and right next to it was a Shiva, and right next to that was a snake goddess from Manoa. And Ellen concluded her autobiography and the interview by saying, this house is me. It's all about me. 
Ellen, Jesus came to say, you've got to make a choice. You can't do Buddha and Shiva and the snake goddess and Islam and Christianity. You've got to make a choice. You just have to choose. Which one is God's way for you? Which one? Not all. Which one is God's way for you? Can you follow a God who was willing to be humiliated and crucified in flesh and blood in a man named Jesus of Nazareth? Number two. I wish they'd ask a little more, don't you? I wish they'd ask a little bit more. They were frightened. They didn't ask. At this point, they didn't want to ask again. But they needed to. This Wednesday, we come to the end of summer and the beginning of fall. Now, the reason for that, of course, is that this Wednesday, we will have exactly 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of dark. Now, ancient humans a long time ago discovered there comes a longest day in what we call mid-June and a shortest day in mid-December and two days equal hours of light and dark in the spring, in the fall. This was important for them because they were hunters and gatherers. They needed to know the migratory patterns of animals of birds. And when they learned to cultivate plants, they certainly needed to know when seeds germinate best and when crops need to be harvested before the freezes begin. Measuring time, very important. In cultures around the world, some of the biggest celebrations occurred at this fall event. When harvest came, Pagans ate too much, drank too much, had sex with too many different people, and finally hauled in their king, proclaiming, Behold our king, he is our God. Not with the Jews. Not for the Jews. What our Jewish community has just been through the last two weeks is what they've been doing for centuries. For them it began with Rosh Hashanah, the new year. The end of one, the beginning of another. Not January 1st, harvest time. At harvest time, 10-day beginning of retrospection, culminating last Friday night in Yom Kippur, the time of atonement. 10 days of asking, what good might I have done this year that I didn't do? What harm did I cause that I should not have? How can I do that better next year? How can I do the good and avoid doing the bad? And is there a chance that God will forgive me, set me right once more, and help me do the good and avoid doing the bad? Yom Kippur. When centuries ago, before the destruction of the Second Temple, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and prayed that God would move from the seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. 
Dr. Sigmund Mowinkel, a great Scandinavian scholar, almost 50 years ago, wrote a, wrote a two-volume commentary on the Psalms in which he was convinced that the Jews for centuries have had this 10-day period not of eating and drinking and indiscriminate sex culminating in bringing in their king and calling him their God but 10 days of repentance of asking God to turn them and send them in a right direction of bringing in the beautiful box in the old temple days the beautiful box holding the tablets of the Ten Commandments and saying behold our God he is our king. Okay. Now, for you and me, we come this side of the great Greek philosophers. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, who would try to talk about God as being that thing which first moved and was not itself moved by anything else, an unmoved mover, or that which first caused and was not itself caused by anything else, an uncaused cause. And 350 years later, Jesus of Nazareth sang, The God who was at the burning bush, the God who visited plague upon plague upon the Egyptians until they let God's people go free, who led them through the Sea of Reeds and brought them back to the mountain where he gave them Ten Commandments, that one, has sent his Messiah but he doesn't look like what you were expecting can you believe this is the Messiah of God the one who's about to go to Jerusalem number three when they came to Capernaum again which he had made his home base after leaving his hometown of Nazareth he asked them, what were you arguing about as we walked this afternoon? They didn't answer. Because they knew deep down they were arguing about the wrong thing. They were still believing deep down when the Messiah comes, he will rout all of our enemies. And if this is the one, it's about to happen. Who's going to sit on the right and who's going to sit on the left? And they knew that did not fit with all that Jesus was telling them. Didn't fit. Have you been reading about Tony Blair's selling his new book? Tony Blair was Prime Minister of Britain, of course, for 10 years, from 1997 to 2007. Tony Blair has written in his new book about his own faith. Um, it's been in the news again this week because the Pope, Benedict XVI, has been in England and Tony Blair became a Roman Catholic. Prime Minister of Britain, which has a state religion, Anglicanism, he became a Roman Catholic. But this is his story. When he was 10 years old, his father, who was 40, had a severe stroke. Tony said his mother trying to keep some normalcy while she tended to the father, sent him on to school. 
He said, shortly after I got to school, the headmaster sought me out, led me down the hall, and quietly asked, Would you like for you and me to kneel and pray for your father? And Tony said, I remember saying to him, Sir, my father does not believe in God. And the headmaster said, That doesn't really matter, because God believes in him. Would you like to kneel and ask God to help your father? I would kneel with you. And Tony writes, I didn't immediately become a Christian. But I didn't forget that moment. I was in college. In college, when I decided I need to act on what I had seen and heard, I had come to believe there really is a God who has unconditional love for every child of His. I was baptized and confirmed, he said, and since that time, I have been a Christian. That's what Jesus is asking his disciples, those who would be his disciples. Can you make a choice? Do you believe there is a God? Do you believe the clearest picture into the heart of God we've ever received is in fact Jesus of Nazareth? Number four. And last, he called a little child, took him in his arms, and said, If you welcome one of these, you welcome me. Well, not really me. You welcome the one who sent me. All the scholars say, You're going to have trouble with this little bit here because children are so esteemed nowadays. If you doubt that, watch how many of them behave in public. You can tell they have never heard the word no. They are esteemed. They are constantly affirmed and affirmed and reaffirmed as to how wonderful they are and how capable they are of doing anything and everything. Not so in Jesus' time. Children were to be with the women, not with the men. Men did men's things. Women took care of babies, little children. This night in Capernaum, there should have been no little children among these men and their famous teacher. Should have been with the women. Little children were non-entities, if you would. Non-entities. Rarely to be seen and never to be heard. So when Jesus takes a little child into his arms and uses here in Mark the same word that he had used a few chapters before when he sent the disciples out two by two and said, those who welcome you teach and preach. They will feed you. They will house you. Keep teaching and preaching and healing. That's the word here. Will you welcome this little non-entity? Those who have no voice, who have no power, who have no wealth. 
Will you welcome? If you welcome one of these, you welcome me. Well, the truth is, you welcome the one who sent me. One of the big dramas, perhaps the biggest drama playing out right now, those 33 miners trapped under the desert down in Chile. Uh, I think about them every so often. I cannot imagine what that would be like to be trapped a half mile below the surface of the earth and know that there was no way out for you for at least three or four months. This began on August the 5th, an explosion, a cave-in, when finally a hole was drilled, very small, but down this half mile, with a little microphone and a camera, the people up on the surface were thrilled to find that all 33 had survived. All 33 were still alive. The largest room still left, about 25 feet by 25 feet, for 33 grown men. There are little shafts off from that where they can have a little privacy and they can sleep. Head to feet, head to feet, stretched out down a mine shaft. But they were told right from the beginning, it's going to take us a long time to get there. We have to bore a hole big enough that we can pull a grown man out through the shaft. It may be Christmas before we can get you out. NASA was summoned. Can you believe this? Our NASA folks, because they've dealt with people alone in space, one, two, then three, occasionally more than three on the space station. But even when they were first sending to the moon and back, uh, how do people do well in situations where they can't get back just when they want to? and may not get back at all. How do they function? Well, the NASA scientists have been saying, first of all, we'll have to watch and see how they determine who's going to lead them. That'll be first. Who's going to lead them? NASA's bet was that because of the culture in Chile, the young would defer to the old. That's what happened. The oldest one there is 62. The youngest one down there is 19. And all 32 turned to the 62-year-old. He appointed as his assistant the 54-year-old, who's next in age. But look what happened next. The NASA scientists say they must maintain a sense of civility. They must not become animals. They must be humans. They must be people to each other. You know what the 62-year-old asked for as soon as there was a hole big enough? Toothbrushes? Toothpaste, razors, bath water, clean clothes. The first picture we saw, men stripped naked to the waist, sweating, grime all over their faces. Not now. They are shaved, they are bathed, and all 33 wearing new red shirts. Sent from the surface. Second, the 62-year-old designated one of the shafts a chapel. A cross was affixed, and all the other 32 were told, you can come to the chapel anytime you want, and if you want somebody else to pray with you, somebody will. And then this part, about taking self out of the center and putting God and the other into the center. NASA said this was a big step when the leader said, 
and nobody will eat until everybody eats. So far, they're doing well. <laughs>